but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hello everybody, welcome back to The Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. I'm James. We don't currently know what episode number this is, because we are recording a mailbag episode to be released at a later date, presumably while we're in Europe somewhere. Yep. We don't know exactly where we'll be or when it will be when we release this episode, but we've recorded it uh, toward the end of Rolling Arrows. Today was... French Open WTA semis day. So we saw Arena Sabalenko do that. We saw Karolina Mukhova do that. We did. And so it's a Mukhova and Sviantec final. Keep in mind if we say anything on this episode in response to questions that you've submitted that sound out of place or inaccurate, it's because they may have been accurate <laughs> when we recorded this episode. Our goal is always to say things that are accurate, you know, at the time of recording. Kicking things off, Tony at TJC05 says, Grab your crystal ball and how does the live slash PGA announcement impact tennis? I've seen a lot of people be very dismissive about this being a precedent setter for tennis. That tennis does not have as much interest from people to even want to buy it or invest that kind of money into it. But I think that would be foolhardy. Yeah. Let's start with with what exactly happened. Not everybody who listens to this podcast follows golf or cares about golf, knows what Liv is. We have suggested that you watch Full Swing on Netflix, the golf equivalent of Breakpoint. Is that yeah. what it's called? Yeah. I can never remember. And we said that we enjoyed that one much more than the tennis one. Right. Partly because it had the backdrop of this interesting uh, kind of turf war in golf. Like the institutions in golf were fighting each other. There Sounds was like you're saying golf. Go- oh my God. Like in where I come from mm-hmm. with our terrible vowels, yes. golf and golf are pronounced the same. Okay. G-O and G-U. Like there's no distinction. Anyway, they had this backdrop of this renegade tour uh, that was slightly problematic, and and that made the the sport itself more interesting. Slightly for the documentary. problematic, <laughs> right? Uh, what happened recently to uh, apparently surprising to a whole lot of people was that the PGA and Live Golf have merged. Live was the breakaway tour, which was funded by the Saudi Arabian government, the uh, Saudi Public Investment Fund. About a number of golfers from the PGA Tour left to join Live. Uh, they were informed by the PGA Tour after they left that they were banned. They'd be able to play in the majors, but they were no longer welcome on the PGA Tour. They would be able to play in the majors provided they qualified. Right. And- for the majority of players at these tournaments, that requires a certain threshold in the golf rankings. Yes. And given that they wouldn't be playing on the PGA Tour and as such not accruing 
ranking points, there was a, an expiration date for a lot of these players to continue to play in these majors. Yeah, the only opportunity to earn points being in the majors, uh, certain former champions would get wildcards into majors regardless. I forget where this is, at the Masters, I think, at the British Open. They could play it regardless, but it may not even be enough to qualify for the other majors, depending they, on how you do. They right? don't call it wild cards. Well, you just get direct Automatic entry. entry right? Yes. Players like Phil Mickelson, Bryson DeChambeau, Brooks, um, Dustin Johnson, they all left for live. They're all seen in the documentary talking about their decision-making. And it was mostly, I'm already extremely rich and I'd like to be more extremely rich. Uh, right. It was, I already have a $10 million home on the Intracoastal Waterway in Miami. I would like a $25 million home, please. I would like my great-grandkids to have $50 million homes when they inherit <laughs> yes. my stinking wealth. The generational wealth I was passing down wasn't enough. And they were they were all talking about, it's just really impo- important for me to provide for my family. Uh, look who we're talking to here. We're not talking to the 300th ranked tennis player right the whole thing was a cash grab they kept trotting out this talking point that it's for the development of the game to make sure that golf survives blah 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 all these patently false reasons why they went to live and it created this schism because you had all these players defending the pga tour that had been around for decades saying that we're not going to abandon this tour. And now these players are going to be joined in some way to be competing on the same level. But these PGA players who defended the tour are doing so without $200 million extra in their pocket. Right. So that's the part that's going to be very interesting to me going forward. Now, the premise of this question is, what if something similar were to happen in tennis? And to my mind, to interrogate that question, you have to think, well, what would that look like? And for me, that would mean... This, the For example, the Saudis, they go and they create this renegade league, right? And they say, hey, for this to happen, we need to poach a couple big names. Right. And what does that look like? Does it mean in two years when Djokovic is maybe about to retire, he's like, well, let me go collect $500 million. And you'd say, well, that won't really move the needle, but wouldn't it? Uh, yes, because a number of people would follow him, first of all. I think a, like a few things would need to happen first. I think some organization would need to establish that tennis could potentially bring in huge revenue streams. Uh, the PTPA is kind of one organization that I think is trying to do that. I think we understand at this point that the PTPA is not a union and is not trying to be a union. Like now they're gearing more toward establishing new streams of revenue, making sure we're getting as much revenue out of the old traditional streams, advocating for players, yes, but we've we've gotten away from like the collective action thing. Right, but this is exactly what the PTPA might be looking for. Yes. Additional revenue Absolutely. streams. Absolutely. So if they can establish that tennis can make money like that's what's going to attract a massive investment like this. Uh, yes, the the Saudi government has the sports washing angle. They will waste money to make their government look better, but 
after a while, they're going to want to see a profit. And in a sport like tennis, where so many of the top-ranked players don't make that much money relative to other sports, you can feasibly see how a bunch of top 100 players would say, well, hey, I will take $5 million. It's, it doesn't even have to be on the scale of... <laughs> The golf, the golf yeah, situation. Yeah, that's why I actually think tennis is even more susceptible to something like this than golf. Golfers were already stinking rich; they already had great TV contracts in golf. But I do think you would need somebody big to jump ship and do it. Yeah, and considering what's happened over the past five years, Djokovic is the obvious. Like the obvious example, he quit the ATP Players Council. He set up this organization that, uh, while not necessarily a rival to the ATP, is challenging them directly. So we shall see. Uh, can we just talk about the Bryson DeChambeau interview for oh, a Oh, yes. I mean, he lost some weight and some brain cells at the same time. He didn't have many to spare. And this interview with Caitlin Collins on CNN was... I mean, the guy is, uh, I've seen people on Twitter just call him the useful idiot for Liv. I just don't, I guess, I guess it doesn't matter at this point. Like you can put anyone out there unprepared because the deal is done. Nobody, nobody's advertising for Liv anymore because the deal has been done. So someone like Rory McIlroy, who's the, been the most vocal anti-Liv person now has to go out and eat crow because he has to play in this new regime. Bryson gets to go out there and respond to a question from Caitlin Collins about the Saudi government's uh, potential harboring or support for 9-11 and essentially say that the Saudis did 9-11, but did you hear the answer to that question? Yeah, he's he like, all, but... <laughs> He all but said, yes, they did 9-11, but let's move on. But that was 20 years ago, and... You know, to move forward in a peaceful world and create a more peaceful world, this is what we need to do. And, he and talked that about, involves golf. He talked about forgiveness. So, I, of course, I wanted to probe, like, forgiveness for what? What, what, are you, what are you implying that the Saudi government did? Every subsequent 10-second stretch of that interview that I watched was even more incredulous to listen to than the, the prior 10. Like, I did not think it could get worse. <laughs> like when he drank a seltzer every few seconds? I mean, this is just like a walking stereotype. <laughs> you you know it was a white claw. Uh, yeah. Okay, this question is from Michael Mungin, who's at Holy Grail 2. Name a male and female player you'd enjoy watching a biopic of. What would be the style of the film? Would it focus on their whole lives slash careers or a key moment or time frame? Can I go first? Yeah. In this Pride Month, I would offer Helen Jacobs. Oh, okay. I wrote her down too. You did? <laughs> yes. Don't don't look. <laughs> yep. Yep. Uh, a throwback to our Pride episode, our Pride special that we did a few years ago, quite a few years ago at this point, and we talked about the letter that was found posthumously from Helen Jacobs to her partner at one point, Henrietta Bingham. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a, that letter alone could be the subject of the movie. Yes. I like Helen Jacobs as as a subject too because so few people know her at this point. It could almost feel like a fictional movie. I think biopics when you set out to create a biopic you're 
you know, the likelihood that you rely on cliches and conventions is very high. So if you made a movie about Helen Jacobs, you're, you're maybe not faced with a lot of expectations about how to do it. I pick someone a little more famous, Althea Gibson. I mean, we're, we're overdue at this point. I mean, there has been documentary work about Althea, but feature-length film would be amazing. Uh, Bill Tilden, really two of the most influential athletes of the 20th century. Bill has kind of a checkered past. Which would make it even more interesting. Would it be... It wouldn't be a St. Bill. It would be... But I feel like any type of Hollywood film would brush over that. Okay, well, I'm making it. (laughs) I would uh, like to see an Arthur Ashe film. Mm -hmm. I also would be interested in seeing an Andre Agassi film, which I'm told may be in development based off of his autobiography, Open. So we'll see. Really? Yeah. Okay. Or maybe I'm making that up. Maybe I imagined that. But I'm pretty sure I read that somewhere. Mm -hmm. To the the other parts of the question, like how would you do it? Would it be focused on a specific time, their whole lives or whatever? That's hard to answer. I find like you probably get more interesting films out of ones that focus on a specific event or or like a short time period. Um, I'm thinking like... Uh, so King Richard focused on a period of probably, what, five years? Mm. It, you know, not much longer than that. Some biopics focus on a specific event in somebody's life. I think that's just more effective storytelling-wise because you're not trying to hit everything. Somebody who wasn't necessarily a player, but who was definitely a player in the history of tennis, I'd like to see a film done on Ted Tindling. Mm-hmm. Definitely. This question from Sharon H., at Trixie Belden underscore. Um, hmm. Peak of powers. Sabalenka versus Serena. Who wins and why? Ma'am. <laughs> <laughs> Are we expected to treat this as a serious question? Yeah, my answer is is pretty obvious. I Well, it's different. This is like who wins the matchup. I think Serena will easily win the matchup. Obviously, they've played before. You could argue that Sabalenka wasn't near her peak at the time. Serena loves power. Like, she's not going to be bossed off the court by anyone. And then the other the other question is, whose peak is better? And, of course, that's also Serena. I think To that, date, we haven't seen Arena's peak, presumably. Uh, sure, maybe. I don't know. Uh, and tennis people love to talk about, like, peak Pierce, peak Petra... Players who could zone and like knock somebody off the court easily. I honestly, I think there are higher, well, there is a higher peak in women's tennis currently, and that's Iga. So I actually think the right question is peak Iga or peak Arena. Oh, not peak Iga, peak Serena? No, because the, they're not touching her. No, I get that, but I thought you were saying that oh, a more apt comparison. Well, yeah, I guess it's close. I mean, well, I don't know. I don't, and I don't think um, like Sabalenka and Serena aren't very similar in style either. They both have a lot of power, but Serena has or had incredible movement. She had better volleys than Arena. Yeah. This question comes from Max Scott, painting era at fickle underscore Stan. What player do you think would be the best travel companion? Now, I have a lot of criteria for this. 
because that's how <laughs> I didn't think of it like, oh, well, I want to travel with this person. I thought of it as, well, what are the things that I look for in a person if I must travel with them? If I must travel with somebody who is not you, that's already a trial and a tribulation, mm -hmm. let alone somebody that I haven't spent all these many, many, many years getting to know their, yes, you know, quirks. Because we all know people, and this person may be you, who travels with their girlies and you all come back hating each other. Listen, I've had so many co-workers go off on trips together and not one of them has come back without complaining about somebody in that group and how mm -hmm. they were a terrible person to travel with. I've been invited to go to foreign countries on trips with many people in my many years at this job and I have rejected every single yes. <laughs> offer because wisely that sounded like a complete nightmare to me so my criteria is this person a quiet person or are they a loud and boisterous person i would rather not go with, go traveling with somebody very young i don't need to be going to no clubs <laughs> i'm not going to a foreign country to go clubbing like that's not it to wait in line at a club no to go pose up for pictures on instagram for the gram no i'm not traveling for the gram <laughs> i'm traveling for the experience I don't want to be with somebody who's going to be pranking. I'm not traveling with Francis Tiafo. I'm just not. <laughs> Under no circumstance. Uh -huh. I need to be traveling with grown folk. I don't want to be traveling with somebody who has annoying friends. To take the chance that one of these rich people, which they are, these tennis players, would just have like, oh, so-and-so is popping by. And I'm like, ugh. Mm -hmm. Like, I've talked so much shit about this person on the podcast. <laughs> Or I just don't like them. They don't, even, they don't even have to know that I don't like them, but I don't like them, and that's reason enough. Okay. Mm -hmm. I need to travel with somebody older, I think. Somebody who would get some of my references, cultural references. And for that reason, I think I would go with Grigor. And there are other reasons okay. that you can fill in why I, think, I would travel um, with Grigor. <laughs> I think Grigor fails your Instagram test, though. Right, but every tennis player is going to take pictures. Sure. I feel like Grigor could at least immerse himself in the experience. Mm -hmm. I I would pick Venus. And let me tell you why that would fall apart immediately for you, Mr. American. Hmm. You're going to be eating out at vegan restaurants every night in these foreign cities? Oh, does it have to be a vegan restaurant? Venus is vegan. Sure, but... Are you going to be eating separately? Does she go to exclusively vegan restaurants? Venus says she's vegan. She also says she's a Cheegan, so she okay. does cheat. So maybe this is investigative reporting for you to out her <laughs> on the podcast. Or but... just ask Venus, like, where do you eat when you go abroad? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I'd want to learn too much about Venus. Oh, That fair might, enough. you know... Yeah, like, never, I've, never meet your heroes? I've already learned too much <laughs> in the last couple of years. The other person I considered was Dasha Kasatkina, just that we could keep it gay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But yeah. the annoying part of that is that she'd be booed up and I'd feel like a third wheel. So maybe it would be like a, the two of us and the two of them. Oh, okay. I think that'd be a couple strip. Sure. That might be better. Yeah. And Andre Rublev as like a fifth wheel. He's, you know, he's just hanging around. <laughs> uh, let me do another one of Pickle Stan's questions because I like this question. What celebrity do you think would be most fun to hear do tennis commentary? So not actually a tennis person, just mm -hmm. a celebrity. I have to confess, we got so many questions about commentary in various forms. 
And I struggle the most with these because I pay so little attention to the commentary. Like, I, I actively try and block it out when I'm watching tennis. And I'm not trying to make some great big indictment on the state of tennis commentary. It just doesn't add anything for me. I've watched enough tennis. I also don't need to be influenced by other people's opinions on what I think about tennis as well, you oh, know? Okay. But with this, I went with a dead celebrity. I think Aretha Franklin would have been a great tennis commentary. When yes. <laughs> when Arena Sabalenka is out there choking away the third set of the French Open semifinals, she'd just be like, great gowns. Beautiful <laughs> gowns. I was thinking of the the great divas who are also great tennis fans, mm-hmm. like Aretha, Gladys, Patti LaBelle, right? We have the same Patty's Patti's a tennis fan too? I'm not quite sure. Or no, uh, Cousin Dion. Again, not quite sure. She was at the US Open, I think, when Serena was there last year. I think so. She was. Yeah, yeah. So I have a few. Amy Sedaris. And this is because I've been seeing Amy Sedaris's interviews with David Letterman go around Twitter lately. I don't know if you've ever seen these. They're just like TV perfection. Amy is so weird uh, and plays her role so well. To that end, I would say Aubrey Plaza. Yeah, yeah. I'm... Because of the angle of this question, I'm not actually looking for a commentator who knows anything about tennis. I just want fun. So Amy, uh, Barbara Streisand. (laughs) Barbara Streisand. A random, but you remember when she called Andre Agassi a Zen master. Oh, yes. Uh, And and finally, Ayo Edebiri, who is the co-star of The Bear. Mm -hmm. She's basically just one of the funniest people alive. And I would just, I would actually pay the subscription to hear her commentary. Jacob Bubro asks, which of the early 2010s WTA icons do you wish were still around as a veteran presence on the tour? In parentheses, maybe outside of Serena being the obvious one. I have only really two options because I tried to, you just looked at my answer. No, I didn't. I tried to keep it fairly reasonable, plausible in terms of how old they would be now. And so I went with Aga Radwanska and Yelena Jankovic. Oh, okay. Uh, I I had Lena. Sir, she'd be like 42. So? The question was early 2010s WTA icons. Okay. Yeah, but, I mean, if that met my criteria, she'd have been my number one. Venus Williams is 43 years old. I understand that. <laughs> Venus Williams is, uh, I don't say unprecedented because Kimiko Date was around for a while. Right. Uh, But that is highly unusual. It it is very unlikely. I will give you that. But I was just thinking about who I liked from that era. And Aga, to be honest, like she wasn't really one of them for me. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And Vika Azarenka is still here. Vika is still young. Yeah. What are you currently watching on Bravo? This is from Annie J, who I believe asked the same question last time. See, I just knew you were coming with this question next. (laughs) Uh, The answer to this is the same probably as the last time. Real Housewives of Atlanta. I think you have given up on Potomac. Because apparently you tell me it's gotten unwatchable. I'll save my answer for after yours. And then we also watch all of the Below Decks. Every last one. They will make a Below Deck sailing moon and we'll watch it 
Below Deck Antarctica, I will watch it. Below Deck Lake Ontario, we'll watch it. Well, especially that, we'll watch it. The Down Under one is coming back soon. Yeah, I enjoyed Down Under. So all of the Below Decks, I do watch Potomac and Atlanta in Housewives. Oh, and Salt Lake City, of course. Oh, yes. But I, well, currently, those aren't on. My hot take, I don't know if this is a hot take, I think that the Housewives concept is effectively dead. Uh, I think it's only a matter of time. Atlanta used to be the highest rated. It is unwatchable, almost. Potomac was unwatchable, period. Even Salt Lake City has lost the magic now that Jen is in prison. Mary Cosby refused to come back. Yeah, the, the Housewives experiment is over, in my opinion. And we're probably the better for it. Rob Brown asks... If you could make a dream mixed doubles pair from any singles-only player, which would it be? Now, I took some liberty with this question because I didn't think of it as only current players. I used one retired player in my answering of this question. And also, if... (sighs) I'm not trying to create the best team. You know, I, I assume that if these players don't play doubles that maybe, most likely, they're not good doubles players. And so when you put both (laughs) of them together, they won't be very good. Mm. It's more about who I think would be cool to see play together. And under these parameters, I go with Andre Agassi and Naomi Osaka. Two uber baseliners who are flashy yet understated in their own rights. Okay, interesting. I... uh... I don't know. Like, I got tripped up by the singles only thing because I was like, what if I pick somebody who has played doubles and I didn't remember that? So whatever. I'm I mean, just, every player will have played sure. one doubles match at some but point. But it's not primarily a doubles Correct. player. So that it also uh, rules out Barbara Krejcikova, who I was going to pair with a number of people, but I won't. What about someone like Ivan Gulagong and Holger Hune? Totally... Uh, incongruous personalities i'm pretty sure yvonne played a lot of doubles fine but (laughs) guess what she won seven in singles so (laughs) yeah that's all i don't know i just want to see yvonne on a tennis court i love this question actually from at ficklestan what player is most likely to have a burner social media account if you switched minds with a player who could you convincingly pretend to be so I guess those are two questions. Now, why do people have burner accounts, James? I think that that's the first mm-hmm. question to interrogate when answering this question. Well, they want to be able to snoop without people knowing who they are. And they want to be able to uh, perhaps get out some aggression. They uh, may also want to creep on people. Right. Mm-hmm. There are many reasons for it. What are the types of people who would have a burner account? Well, I don't really know. I mean, I don't have one, so I don't know. Uh, I would say, uh, well, very, very high profile people, first of all, who don't have the luxury of privacy. Uh, But also, now this is not absolute, but I think there is a personality type that would be drawn to a burner account, like someone with an immense ego, a narcissist, perhaps. Yes. Uh, A narcissist who couldn't handle people talking badly about them like whose other people's opinions would be really important to them i think you hit the nail on the head perfectly (laughs) but that's not to say everyone with a burner account is that person 
But you know what I mean? Like, right. But I think somebody who values their privacy or doesn't have the luxury of privacy and can't engage in ways that quote-unquote regular folk can on social media right that's a candidate like you can't kiki on tennis twitter if you're serena so for sure serena has a burner account <laughs> for sure <laughs> i also think that somebody like nick curious probably has a burner account oh yeah yes and for reasons that i'm not even gonna say here for fear of being sued oh oh sure yeah I think we should ask the actual journalists this question because I know that they know who has burner and accounts. And I'm pretty sure a lot of them themselves have burner accounts. Indeed they do. Because in this tennis Twitter social media landscape, you know the girlies are out here talking smack left, right, and center. And you I mean. you always see like people finding things. You're like, well, how did they find that? <laughs> journalists are like chief Number one gossips, okay? To the second part of the question, who could you convincingly pretend to be if you switched minds with a tennis player? Uh, presumably the question is, with this person's presence on social media, who could you impersonate? Mm -hmm. And I think I could do a pretty good job of being Serena. It would be like, hey, here's me being rich. Hey, I just bought a team today. Here's Olympia. <laughs> here's me with Beyonce. I just... I just bought, me and Alexis just bought a golf team with Tiger and Rory. I also think I could be Alizé Cornet, just be out here messy. Messy, messy, messy <laughs> all the time. Getting involved in everybody's business and calling it like she thinks it is. Mm -hmm. uh, Max, who asked the question, actually said, I feel like Steph would be the easiest. That's 100% right. Uh, Steph has a voice that would be easy to imitate. I think I could impersonate Nick because like there's a pretty clear a sort of aggressive bro energy about him that I don't I don't think is that hard to duplicate because and just follow any of the blue checks who are showing up in your replies lately and that's kind of the vibe. Listen, just be aggressive and then end the tweet with potato. And you <laughs> and it's done. It's over. Right. Dennis TMD C asks with james going to the u.s open this year rank the other three slams to which would be the next likely slam you guys will visit let me now let me take this one because this is very very different from the one i would most prefer to visit mm -hmm. probably be the exact opposite of what i'm going to say right now okay the most likely is rolling Garros. yes because it's closer than australia and it's easier to get tickets the second is probably Australia. And the third is Wimbledon because I don't know how the hell to get tickets to it. I don't know how it works. Well, Roland Garros is the first option. And we'll we'll probably try next year. Because uh, it will probably be Rafa's last. We've never seen mm -hmm. Rafa at the French Open. That might be something to see. Might be something to see. But from a practicality perspective, the second one is Wimbledon. Because going to Australia requires taking pretty much all your leave for the year to go do it. And also compromise like holiday celebrations, potentially. Oh. oh, Why? It's like almost a month after Christmas. Right. But then you have to work through the holidays if you're going to like be able to afford the time off mm. to go take another like three weeks off. Right. You know, it's just it's a lot. 
It's a huge undertaking. Yeah. Australia would be my number one most desired slam to visit, definitely. Followed by Wimbledon. So you can go stalk Craig Tiley around the grounds and yell at him? <laughs> and so I've, I've told you that Roland Garros is like my distant fourth favorite, so that would be dead last on my list. So you can dress up as a wet bulb and go <laughs> display your temperature <laughs> uh, all over the place? Uh, this question is from Ian, who's at Tennis Ings, I-N-G-S. My question is about curses. Is tennis living through an age of curses? Necklace curse, Netflix curse, not just a big three curse. Two of those curses apply to Barbora, which offends me personally. I would say get away from me with this dark-sided stuff. Okay. To answer this question, you have to first answer, do you believe in curses? No. So let's move on. (laughs) (laughs) But we talked about curses quite a bit. Yes. Well, it's... uh, When you engage with whether you believe it or not then that just highlights just how much this talk is for show and just to be part of the discourse right sure so tennis players themselves are very superstitious athletes great athletes are extremely superstitious so do they believe in curses maybe they probably would say no but they maybe actually do deep down but we always hear about all these different kinds of curses i think one of them was winning the u.s open the, the men in particular who've won the U.S. Open recently haven't gone on to have good years. Dominic Team then got injured. Mm, Andy Murray. Del Potro. It hasn't been a great precursor. That said, who was wrapped up in that for a while was Carlos Alcaraz. Missed Australia this year. Here we go. The U.S. Open curse. <laughs> but now he's back. So... I think you do what you must with these things to make you feel better about what's going on. Yeah. Jess at ghost story underscore JC asks, you're in charge of a tournament. Where is it at surface? Is there a dress code and does it have a nickname mascot? No, I know you are not the most imaginative person. I'm not either, but you even more so when it comes to these types of questions, you're always like, I don't I don't know what to say. I can't think of anything. So I'm going to lead you to the water and then you can maybe help me build this tournament. Okay. But if I disagree, I'll make my own. Fine. It's going to be a gay pro event. And this event is going to celebrate all of the gay queer ancestors in tennis. Oh, wow. Okay. We're going to have the images of all the forefathers and foremothers and four people at the tournament. We're going to have maybe a night for each of them. Okay. Now, what is the mascot? Is the mascot going to be like a bear in a jockstrap? What is it going to be? No, that's too male-centric. Okay. Um, hmm, a butterfly, <laughs> a, a panda. Like, I always imagine pandas being very queer-friendly. Uh, Penguins. Cows. Love cow. You know, cows are just angelic beings. So, we'll Mo- ha- honestly, most animals are not homophobic. I'm I'm prepared to say that. <laughs> Based on TikTok, a lot of them are racist. Well, you know, I can't speak to that. But <laughs> <laughs> well, that's just the in my view, the pet taking on the cues from the owner. Oh. That's that's my perspective right. on it. Location? Have you thought about a location? Puerto Vallarta, Mexico? <laughs> sure. Sitges? Barcelona. But these are like gay male resort towns. Right. This is my perspective from what I know. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not 
particularly attuned to what Dasha and her paramour are up to, <laughs> where they vacation. Okay, fair enough. Uh, surface? Clay is definitely the queerest surface. Right, but why don't we create a, a hard court with multiple colors on it, a very bright, vivid hard court? Okay, all right, okay. I'm with you. Well, you haven't really helped me much. What do you uh, have? Is there an entry list? Like, there are entry requirements? I have some ideas about that. Okay, then go for it. Yeah. You have to, uh, you have to first of all, take Felix's survey. <laughs> and if you answered that you don't mind hearing homophobic slurs in the locker room, you're not allowed to enter. And mind you, this is a Masters 1000 event, so like you won't be forfeiting a lot of points oh and money God. if you're homophobic. <laughs> Queerphobic, transphobic, any of those things. Uh, no, uh, for my own, I I didn't. This is a great idea, uh, but I was thinking Mexico City, somewhere in Latin America. I I actually would love to have said grass, but grass is just not a very climate friendly surface at this point. It requires a lot of irrigation. So let's go with clay. As does clay. They're watering those things all the time. What? Even when they don't okay. need to be. Um, let's go with dirt. Is dirt an option? <laughs> let's have the pickleball queer slam. No. Oh, girl. <laughs> I can hear people turning it off right now. Dress code? No. Dress code. I don't like dress codes. Tennis needs to be less exclusive in general. No classism allowed. You can wear as much or as little as you want. It just cannot be white. That's my only. All right requirement but to be totally serious if any new tournaments appear on the calendar i think they have to go in south america or africa places that are historically underserved by tennis and and i should say latin america as a whole a big event in the caribbean which would be amazing Uh, i mean the, the west indies can host the uh cricket world cup they have yeah exactly so why can't you know the argument will always be, well, there's not the infrastructure there. Well, then build it. We got a lot of questions about who we think will be the next slam winner on the ATP and WTA. And this question came in varying forms. Sapna Shah asked, thinking about these players so far at Roland Garros, which of the following would you most want to win a slam? Muhaba, Kasatkina, Svitolina, Jabur, Pavlyuchenkova. Well, we now know that Karolina Muhova actually does still have a chance to be the one who does that. Right. She's one match away. Jasmine asks, who do you see as the next players in both WTA and ATP to win their first slam? And Ryan Baker asks, who will win a slam first? Assuming any do. From the women, Jabur, Pegula, Sakari, And from the men, Fritz, Sinner, and Felix. Now I'm going to start with Ryan's question first. I'm going to say of those three men and three women, I think Jabir and Taylor Fritz have the best chances. Yeah, I was actually going to say the same. Really? On the men's side, Fritz and Sinner are, I think, neck and neck. Felix is not really in a place at the moment where we can consider that. Not to say that it won't happen. It very well could happen and hopefully will. 
You know I'm in a very gloom and doom place when it comes to Yannick Sinner, <laughs> if you listen to our last episode. And I also just don't... I, I'm disheartened by his chances even further when you consider he has to get through these long, drawn-out five-set affairs. Potentially multiple of them. He's not somebody yeah. who's been able to stay fresh throughout those long matches, let alone win multiple of them. Like, it's just... I don't know, I just... On paper, you would say that he's the one, but I just see Taylor Fritz doing it first, if somebody is to do it first. All right. Or at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, For Jasmine's question, who do we think will be the next players in WT and ATP? I, no, I'm not lying here. I did vote Mukhova before she made the final. What? Really? Yeah. Oh, I'm still going with Ons, and I do wish Carolina well in that French Open final, and this question may be moot by the time you listen to it, but should that not happen, I will go with Ons Jabeur, and on the men's side, I'm going to go with Taylor Fritz. Before this French Open, I may have gone with Holger Hune, but that did not look good. Oh, like, who? you're saying who will be the most likely? Yes. Okay. For me, I... Actually, had the other Scandinavian. Casper. Yeah. You're uh, a Casper convert after watching I, him beat Holger. I don't know about convert, but I just... Runa someday, definitely. But his stamina, like the fitness issues over five sets, lead me to believe not yet. I cannot pick him yet to be the next guy to win a major. Well, I said there was so much talk about him heading into the French Open, and I said that on the previous yeah, episode. I said, yeah. like, this is and I uncharted territory for him. We don't know how he will react, how his body will hold up, and this was not a good account of it. Mm-hmm. And then as far as um, on the women from that list, who do I most want to win a slam? I picked Anshavor, just because I've wanted it for a long time. She's been to two slam finals already. I just think it's time. It'll also be the best thing for women's tennis, I think. Yeah, I mean, it will be transformative. What would a mailbag episode be without an FMK from Shola? Mm-hmm. From Shola's Talks Tennis on Twitter, his FMK is a one-handed backhand bombshells edition. And I love how these always have a theme, right? <laughs> yes. But this one is a theme with a caveat to explain away his abhorrent choices that he's given us. <laughs> Right. The the caveat is that they're odious. Is that it? Yes. One-handed backhands. And these are the top three one-handed backhands according to Tennis Abstract as of May 29th. Therefore, Grigor Dimitrov cannot be on this list. <laughs> A lot of arbitrary wow. criteria here. <laughs> and so the three options are Stefano Tsitsipas, Lorenzo Mussetti, and Daniel Evans. Yeah. Um, all right. Okay. I, I actually wanted to skip the question, but you've insisted that we answer it just out of loyalty to show yeah, yeah, It would be a little bit disrespectful yeah. to him at this point. I guess I would... Well, okay. I would have to F Musetti, even though I don't want to, because I don't want to be married to him. Uh, it feels very homophobic. Uh, I would marry Stephanos. And I would have to kill Dan Evans because I don't do drugs. Like, I just don't want to be around that environment. It's not the xenophobia? 
That's not what did it for you? <laughs> Do you know that meme? <laughs> There's this meme like, I could handle the racism, but... <laughs> well, Dan Evans, uh, I hope he has a lovely funeral. Because... <laughs> In this hypothetical, I would F Sitsipas because I could not marry him at all. To be tethered mm. to nothingness for the rest of your life together, I, I could not. I simply couldn't mm-hmm. to listen to those stolen quotes every day because you know they happen orally as well coming out of his mouth. Right, it's not just on right. Twitter. Like the the sheer volume of vapidness, would, you know, it would, it would be suffocating. You've done this before. It's always an option just to say verbally. <laughs> <laughs> and I would marry Musetti, even though, as you say, it's incredibly homophobic. To do so, but I would still be able to get money, mm-hmm. and also I'd be living in Italy, right, with means, and I wouldn't have to see him. Presumably, if okay. I could set those parameters, right. I always wonder: uh, is it the premise of these questions under the marry category? Is divorce an option? Like, well, it, it has to at be at some point. It's right? a fifty percent reality for the world, <laughs> right? So, marry and at some point divorce. Mm-hmm. Can we assume that? Okay. Who are your favorite players turned commentators slash pundits? Which current players do you think would be good at it in the future? This is from Vikesh, who is at Vikesh on Twitter. Got in on the ground floor on that one. Love this it. one sounds like we may have answered it before. I think so, but I'm going to answer it again. Okay. My answer might be different. Okay. Uh, as far as favorite players turned commentators, I always say this. I love Lindsay Davenport as a commentator. Love Chanda Rubin. Uh, and I like Jill Krabass. I feel like a lot of people on Tennis Twitter really dislike her. And I think part of it is that they they simply don't like her voice and her cadence. But I, I think she's actually pretty good. Uh, I like Chanda. I, like, I mean, I, I like those people. But again, I don't. I've removed myself oh, right. from... You just don't hear it anymore. I've detached myself from the tennis commentariat. I will say if commentary is bad, I can't not hear it. But even when it's good, it's often repetitive. It's a it's a no-win yeah. situation yeah. because we are so immersed in tennis that the things that are being said, they're true, they're insightful, but they're not insightful to us. No, I disagree. I mean, I I feel like I learn things a lot when Lindsay's talking. Yes, I'm just saying the ratio between learning something and hearing something you've heard many times before, be they tropes or just something you already know, like it's there's a discrepancy there. Okay. All right. And I don't mean this to be dismissive to tennis commentary. It's almost an acknowledgement of how difficult the job is. Yeah. yeah. Because we know from doing this and why I kind of shy away from these questions now and like dunking on people and let's say say something really abhorrent is because it's something that we struggle with all the time trying to not be repetitive right and we don't have to be live exactly who do you think would be good at it in the future i don't know if you have an answer for this i don't okay i think that barbara krachikova She's going to be my answer for everything. Well, she watches the most tennis. Nobody likes tennis like Babs No, nobody. And my other one is Bianca Andreescu. Not because I think she would be the greatest analyst, 
but I, I think she's okay. So I've seen Bianca speak, uh, like at the Rogers cup, um, behind the scenes, like doing tennis Canada events. And she has this charming zany energy to her in person that is just so inimitable. Like it's a charisma that you can't fake. And so I think there, there would be a little offbeat quality to Bianca's commentary. It may not all be about tennis, but it would be entertaining. I would listen to Alizé Cornet. Well, yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Cat 53 asks, If women played best of five, who would gain or lose the most? Uh, she says, Sadly, Petra would be toast. Watching Hedad Maya and Soribes Tormo, they would love it. Your opinions? I honestly think that Iga would benefit the most. I think the gulf between Iga and everybody else would become even greater. Yes, I agree. Yep. Especially on clay. If you saw how just how much Hadad Maya had to throw at Iga today and still come up short in straight sets. The prospect of winning three sets against her at the French Open? Come on. Mm-hmm. Like, if you can beat Iga, it would have been in those two sets over three forget it like she's in a different gear she's gonna learn from set two and be better she's an incredible mover i think you have to be a great mover or you have to hit a fully dominant ball Mm. to be a great five set player i think the premise of the question also elevates players with supreme fitness Mm -hmm. i think that coco goff might benefit from it i think her development as a player would be aided with more time on court to be able to work things through. I agree. I think Sloane Stevens is in the same camp in that category. I have Iga, Goff, Sloane. Oh. Those are the three that yeah. I have. I, I mean, watching Sloane against Sabalenka, my takeaway is like Sloane's movement is is one of the dominant weapons on court right now. And if she could just like dig in here a little bit, if she could frustrate Arena for longer, mm. then we're we're really in it. It is one of the great short-sighted moments of us on this podcast, if I can speak for both of us, to not appreciate Sloane Stevens's gifts on a tennis court mm-hmm. earlier than we have. Yes. Oh, I thought you were going to say, like, discount speed as a weapon as well. No, not... I mean, we've always appreciated that, but to be able to truly appreciate just how well she moves on a tennis court and just how amazing it is, it took me a long time to come around to that. Mm -hmm. And I will say, for posterity's sake, Serena would be a dominant player in five sets. Like, Serena would have relished the opportunity to show what she could accomplish across five sets. As somebody who could get through games quickly definitely benefits. Uh, you get to a fifth set and you have that serve. You get to a fifth set and you are comfortable in that drama. You need the drama in certain spots to pull you through. Yeah, A fifth set tiebreak, deep in a fifth set, Serena Williams with all her gifts. Mm-hmm. I would say the person who would suffer the most... Petra at this stage of her career, I understand why Kvitikat said that. But Bianca Andrescu would be toast. Oh, just because of the the physical issues. Like physically, yeah. she just would not be able to do it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, to me, like I'd like to take this opportunity to reiterate, there's no reason that women cannot play mm-hmm. best of five sets. There's no physical reason. Nope. The reason is purely social. 
when people say on TikTok and Twitter, like, oh, oh, well, the women should play best of five if they want to get paid equally. Who do you think is holding that up? Like, think think critically for a moment. The tournaments have zero interest in this. Because that then makes them have to consider their manspreading and trying to curtail that. Right. But if you want to talk about science, right, like women are actually incredibly skilled at endurance events. Um, there's there's no reason that the female body could not play best of five and be excellent throughout those five sets. These things are all social constructs. And one of the best examples of this for me, and it is not an original thought, I must have seen it on Twitter or TikTok somewhere. Women, historically, through the centuries, have been told that their place is in the kitchen, Right. The man goes out, does the work, come comes home. Early in the morning, I put breakfast on your table and make sure that your coffee has its sugar and cream. <laughs> That's a song. Uh, but how many of the executive chefs in the world are women? If women are so, so naturally inclined to excel in the kitchen, why are they not the top... Mm-hmm. Well, the top of the rung in the restaurant industry, right? Because labor is only valued outside of the home, first of all. For one. And if there's a spot for men to make money more than women, they'll, they're going to take it. Any thoughts on the City Open becoming the first combined WTA ATP 500 event? Is that something you think or hope we'll see more of? This is from at Glitter Squirrel. I think it's awesome. I think... We need more opportunities to see the men and the women play together. In my opinion, it's the greatest attribute of our sport. And from a business perspective, it's really good for audience. It's really good for ticket sales. It's good for WTA's revenue, of course. But it's also good for television ratings. The the best rated events are joint events. With everything tennis being so disparate all the time, from being able to watch tennis to be able to find a tennis, to be able to know what's happening where, to be able to follow your favorite player. You think, oh, I'll watch this tournament. So-and-so must be playing. No, actually, they're in Chile this week. There's three different tournaments happening at the same time. Who to follow where? When you can get as many of the top players as possible, men and women in the same spot, provided you treat them equally, which continues to be a problem in tennis from an administrative, bureaucratic level, once you can do that, it's a win-win. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And you've seen the quality of the WTA side of the event and the ATP side go up since this announcement. The the draws are going to be really great. This was already a popular event, and this raises the profile of both sides of the tournament. Like, don't let the bros tell you anything different, right? (laughs) Like, ATP tennis is improved by having the women at the same tournament. Apologies to Will Kazdo who submitted this question for our last mailbag episode, I believe in February, but we didn't get around to it, but we're going to do it this time. He asks, pick three to five active WTA players to form a girl group. What is the name of the group? What is their music like? What are the group dynamics? Did you come up with something? I do. I I have a few, yes. I have one. Can I go first? Yep. I'm going to go with Coco Goff, Taylor Townsend, Sloane Stevens, Alicia Parks. And they're going to be called either Destiny's Grandchildren <laughs> or SWG. 
Oh my god. Sisters with game? Yes! Wow. <laughs> I love it. I did well, didn't I? Yeah, yeah. That's that's your group? I mean that that's my group. Okay. And I imagine it has to be 90s styled. It has to be in the style of a TLC, of an En Vogue, of uh salt and pepper, like a, Yeah. They're wearing puffer jackets, overalls, Timberlands, right? And nineties clothing is back now, so it's not a stretch. Mm-hmm. Okay, I have a few. I have a few ideas. First of all, the Lindas, like they they already have the name, so <laughs> just put them together. I and have, they will be appearing on Eurovision. <laughs> yes, I have Jesse Pegula and Emma Navarro, the Nepo babies. Right, we're gonna call them Wilson Phillips. <laughs> uh, and then finally, Danielle Collins, Carolina Mukhova, and Paula Badosa. The association may not be obvious. But I think they could form a really cool kind of like Laurel Canyon, Southern California, cool girl aesthetic. Who's Joni Mitchell? Well, no, it's not. I mean, Joni, she comes on her own, you know, but just, uh, I don't know, just like, I don't know what the music would sound like either. I think it's sort of folky, not quite like Haim. They're a little bit like more glam than Haim. But the three of them just give me a confident, cool girl aesthetic. Lee underscore tennis Ali asks, I have two questions. What do we make of Hyun Chung? And two, is, is the Body Serve Hall of Shame rapidly expanding after this year's Roland Garros? What do we make of Hyun Chung? As ever, a supremely talented tennis player who's been beset by injuries. I can only hope that with him being back now that this is for good and that he has... A run of play, a long run of play, uninterrupted by injuries. Because this is the guy who was the last person to beat Novak Djokovic in Australia. He he played Andy Murray recently on grass in Serbaton and lost. I don't think he was expected to win. Uh, but baby steps. That's That's what I expect. I think he's still young enough that should he maintain his health, he could have a resurgence. It's just a, just one more athlete in tennis... One more tennis player, one more example of just how brutal the sport is on your body. Mm-hmm. So many players, be it from the physical toll to the mental toll, they're not able to complete a natural progression of their career arc. There, How many players have had their destiny unfulfilled because tennis is such a brutal sport? Right. The second question is the Body Surf Hall of Fame rapidly expanding. After this year's Rolling Girls. Uh, I feel like you invented... There There actually was not a Hall of Shame. We had a Hall of Fame. No, Joe Willie Sanga was the first one, I believe. No, but I don't, I don't feel like we used that language. I definitely did. Oh, okay. I will say, you know, my approach to tennis is not carceral. So I'm excusing myself. I'm an abolitionist except for Alexander Zverev. Abolish prisons except for it. <laughs> Even virtual, hypothetical, <laughs> made-up prisons? Yes. But you also like to have the power to do whatever you want. This is something you have complete control over. Correct. So what's what's the give? No, I don't, I don't have a hall of shame. I just have people that I refuse to ever mention again. Mm. Does that make sense? But yes, there were a lot of disappointing events um, and people. I see where you're going because you're trying to move me away from having to induct 
Kaspar Ruud after the semifinals, since you're now his oh. bestie. No, I thought you were going to say Francis. Well, he's, I, he's I'm, in timeout as well. We're not putting more black people in oh my. suspension. That is so rude. We're not. That is so rude that you would lay that at my feet. <laughs> Just saying, proceed with caution. Steph in the U.S. says, WTAF, what the actual fuck is going on with WTA leadership? Feels like the inequalities and messes are one after another lately. Where are they? You know, Steph, this is a fair question. It's not a it's not a question we necessarily have the answer to. We do not know the the behind the scenes goings on. We've only ever erred on the side of caution with I guess going too hard on the WTA. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think And maybe an... we have gone too soft on the WTA before. I think there was an era where we went hard on the leadership and then we're in the current era where maybe we are soft pedaling too much. Um I don't know what the right approach is, honestly. I do think that, right or wrong, Steve Simon's tenure will probably not be viewed positively by history, and th- and that may not be his fault. Um, I mean, it started off with him being overheard in an airport in an airport lounge, giving away confidential information. <laughs> Remember that? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. That was about doping, right? The yes. anti-doping protocols. I will say, like, I've been pretty disappointed recently over things like. So we haven't really heard much from the WTA about the the doubles trophy presentation catastrophe at Madrid. Um, I, I think people are wanting to hear from them about the Miyu Kato default in Rolling Girls women's doubles. I'm less hawkish about that one because what happened was technically within the rules. As much as possible, I'd like to see the WTA loudly fight for their players even when there's a potential they could be wrong. I have no doubt that the WTA is doing things behind the scenes to protect its players. I do, but... But at a certain point, when you're getting flogged publicly this much, there has to be some kind of PR branch of the WTA that can move to address that. Yeah. TyGuy84 Peter asks, is Sloan getting to another major final? Peter... He's trying to get us in trouble because if Why? you don't say yes, then a certain rangers are going to be upset. I mean, we know that there aren't that many of them. <laughs> <laughs> wow. But after watching this tournament, why not? Yeah. Why Sloan's not? still young. Sloan's going to have presumably many more French Opens to play. Many more U.S. Opens to play. That game can do damage against anybody. Ubikutkus, I think, I hope I pronounced it properly or closer to what it's supposed to be this time. He asks, has there ever been an episode that you've recorded but scrapped it before putting it out for any reason? The answer is no. No. There have been segments. There there have definitely been segments uh, in some that we put a lot of work into that we recorded and then decided in the editorial process <laughs> to to just delete that will never see the light of day. I'm sure there's hours of stuff that I thought is in, is on Podbean somewhere that you've deleted. Yeah, because you don't listen back to our episodes, no. so you have no idea what I've cut and what I haven't. I could cut, like, all of your dialogue and you would have no idea. I'd have no idea. <laughs> there, there have been a few instances where like the computer crashed or the file got screwed up and we had to 
we actually did have to re-record an episode once. Do you remember this? Yes. Yeah. So we had to re-record once. Uh, I think we were in separate places and the sound was so bad that we had to start over. And we did have to restart the editing process once, which is incredibly frustrating. Um, but there are definitely segments that, uh, upon re-listen, I was like, no, mm-mm, mm-mm, that's not going in. And also like maybe two to three minute stretches of a topic within a topic. Yeah, where it's just like, wow, that sounds annoying. So or if you, it sounds repetitive. Yeah, or, or I'm sure there, there are times when we cut that two to three minute stretch and then y'all are like, wow, so measured. And that's probably why we did it. Right. You know, it. if something makes it to air that sounds that we're really going off on something without mitigation, that's rare, I would say. Yeah. Bad Toss wants to know if the rumor that a men's minimum wage being on the horizon is true. I do too. I would like to know. Maybe someday if we have another blooper segment, the listeners can hear you trying to read that question the four <laughs> times that you failed to do it. <laughs> this The reason that I said I would like to know if it's true as well is that it was reported in the Daily Mail and it was reported in the Express. Not my preferred sources for breaking news. The Mail reports that uh, players ranked around 300 and above could be offered a guaranteed salary by the ATP. The Express's take on this was purely editorial, and this is why I don't really read the British tabloids or like take what they say as gospel, because <laughs> he said the Express presented it as a, quote, huge personal victory for Djokovic. Okay. In what way? I understand that he's been... Uh, He's been pushing for this through the PTPA, but we have no information. The Express writer presented no information about where this is coming from and why. Yeah, we don't have any inside info, unfortunately. It's something that we are both interested in as well. So let's keep our eyes and ears peeled. Atman Doshi asks, I know that no player is bigger than the game, but does this year's Roland Garros feel a bit off with the absence of Rafa? I don't know how to put it exactly, but the charm of the event is missing, at least on the men's side. Yeah, I think any answer to this from us is clearly biased. But I will say, to me, the women's side has offered a lot more intrigue and better matches than the men's during this tournament, which is not unusual. But if we're looking at the women's semifinals today, a perfect example. As we're recording, it's the night before the djokovic Alcaraz. uh semifinal so that could be an amazing match have no idea could be a classic but the men's tournament hasn't really offered what i don't know it's been a little lackluster to me and if if any one player is bigger than the sport it's rafa at roland garros Uh, i mean i've definitely been the least interested i've been in the french open for a while and this has to be the reason why There's no other reasonable explanation for it. Yeah. I don't think that means that the tournament couldn't have been good on the men's side. These men just didn't do what needed to be done. Like Carlos beating these guys easily in straight sets. uh, Not super exciting. I mean, it certainly says something about Carlos. 
But <laughs> yeah, right, but then people will say this is what Rafa did for all those years. Why was that interesting then? Okay, and I, that's where we're biased. I mean, Felix brought him to five sets just last year. Like, okay, yeah, sure. But that's why we're biased in answering this question because that was we've always said beatdowns by or faves. We're here for it. Yeah, I don't need. But Rafa has won drama. fourteen. Yes, I'm not saying that they're the same. I'm not trying to compare Carlos to Rafa. That's not what this is. I'm just saying that in previous years, Rafa has blitzed the draw and we found it interesting. We were sure. taken by it. And there's a reason for that. Mercy. You tried to make me a racist earlier, like incarcerating black tennis players. No. <laughs> Patricia Lowe at Dustmill46 says... When a match reaches a tiebreak, the Kames immediately whip out all the stats relating to the tiebreak history of the players. A, do you think previous tiebreak stats are all that relevant or have any bearing on the outcome of a fresh tiebreak? And B, leading on from that, are certain players inherently better at tiebreaks than others? Tiebreaks are by their nature a bit of a lottery, aren't they? I think conventional wisdom necessitates us to think or perpetuate the idea that players with big serves do better in tiebreaks. Right. Uh, John Isner, for example. Um, I think certain players, yes, are a lot better at tiebreaks than others. Novak Djokovic is an obvious example. He's played five tiebreaks at Roland Garros. He's won them all. He won one against Hachanov, a seven-love. He has the all-time best tiebreak record in the history of the sport. So not everybody is that clear-cut. A lot of it has to do with individual matchups. Um, a lot of it has to do with accidents, net cords, bad luck, bad shot selection. There are a lot of factors that go into a tiebreak, especially one that ends at 7. You know, you get a little bit more leeway and probably more variation in one that goes to 10 or to 12. It's hard to say. I mean, the stats don't lie, right? But matchup has a ton to do with it. I think there are many factors. There's a serve. There's experience. I think something about having a, a finite number of points where you know that the end is near benefits some players who maybe have a stronger mental prowess. That they know mm -hmm. that they can buckle down for these... 13, 15 points, or in the case of Djokovic sometimes, these seven points where he wins 7 nothing, and it'd be over. Right, right. Like, you could have played a very discouraging set, or you're dealing with some kind of injury, and it's like, can I psych myself up to just concentrate for five minutes? But the flip, the flip side of that, though, is if you're facing somebody who's a big server, you only need to win one point on their serve, theoretically, to win the set. Yes. So... Does that negate the idea that big servers are that impregnable? Maybe. I think it's a combination of many different things. But when you take somebody's overall output and their win percentage in tiebreaks and you see it's that high, I think that is indicative of a player who thrives in that situation. Yeah. I think when you see a lot of stats like, uh, so far this year, the person is two and three in tiebreaks. That's not very... <laughs> that's not very helpful or there it's not very illustrative like give me uh over the past three years or in 
final sets or against uh, top 10 in, players exactly like in certain moments that tell you what kind of pressure they were under like i that's what i hope from a lot of the statistics in tennis is that they're more specialized it's just because this person did something over the course of their entire career they could have had a total sea change halfway through or they could perform differently at majors or at tour events you know were those tie breaks against serena williams or gail falkenberg (laughs) right right there's yeah tennis has so many opportunities to do analytics better a follow-up for pat we did not get to this in our february episode but you had a couple questions for us back then first you said i love the occasional lusty come on or vigorous fist pump but is it is a fist pump to the box really necessary after every single point one? <laughs> I'd be really ticked off about this too. Like, who has the time? If I'm a player, who has the time to do that? Yeah. I'm I, much more on the skull at my box than fist pump at my box every minute type person. That I think that's who I would be as a a player, personally. Mm, I'd I, be cussing on the court all, all the time. Like, oh, if yes. I could play yes. tennis as a professional tennis player... Wearing a mask, I would. Because you could not read my lips. <laughs> right. But if if you could also hear what tennis players say on court that don't get picked up by the mics, you'd probably be horrified and scandalized. Not you, Pat. I know you know, but like <laughs> even the Are you talking to me? me? No, no. Just in general. Who's you? Just in, in general. <laughs> like if we knew what these players were saying to themselves, we'd be shocked. Uh to, I think the like the constant fist pumping is a modern invention. So people who have been watching tennis for a long time probably saw that change. Yes, I remember when Leighton Hewitt. Are you was calling the, Pat old? No, no, no. I mean, I we saw that change, right? Yes. Um, when Leighton Hewitt was playing, are you the, calling me old? We, I said we. <laughs> Can I finish yes, the sentence? I'm sorry, no? I'm sorry, I'm sorry. When Leighton Hewitt was playing, there was all this debate about whether him celebrating on an opponent's errors was against the, you know, the spirit of competition. That that debate does not exist anymore. Nobody nobody is crying about whether whether you've done a fist pump or a come on when somebody's missed. That's just everybody does that. But I think there was a time when the fist pump was seen as excessive. Uh, Maria Sharapova doing her little, you know, her little like uh, fist. Clenched fists. Yeah. Anna Ivanovic fist pump constantly. The fist pump twirl. Right. And to be honest with you, Pat, I don't know. I don't know. Serena it was part of that too. Yes. I legitimately just don't notice. Anymore. No, I do notice. And the, oh. the big culprit is Carlos Alcaraz. Everything is a fist pump. Well, and the thing that the thing that bothers me no, the most. Dif- there's a difference here. No, but the thing that bothers me most about this whole thing, not so much the fist pumping, but the let me hear it from the crowd, like telling the like you did one thing, buddy. That's different. No, and that's you, different. That's it different. is. It is different, but it's in the same category. It's like pumping yourself up. Yeah, like just do the job. Like the the hand to the ear thing. I don't. I don't. Like I'm that. so tired of it. Honestly, when the whole crowd is already with you, you don't you don't need to beg. And do you know how much it hits when you're just going through the match and you maybe have a lull and you get to an important point and you do the thing and you do something impressive and then you're able to do like a five in a row squatted 
fist pump right. jackhammer like Rafa. Like that hits. The whole point of the fist pump is for it to hit, not just for the viewer <laughs> or the people in the crowd, but for yourself. Yeah. Like how much zhuzhing up are you getting if you're doing it every point? Save it for when it counts. All right. It's just too much. For me, it's too much. Mm. The other question that Pat had was, what for you are the most irritating commentator remarks or overused phrases? Mine, mine being Pat's, the ubiquitous two points away, even if the score is 30 all. So both players are actually two points away. I'm assuming it's like two points away from winning the match. Yeah, yeah. Or in that case, you're two points away from breaking and getting back on serve. It has now morphed into one game away, one set away, one match away. It's used with such regularity and I find it the most pointless, no pun intended, irritating and lazy commentating ever. Can also throw in phrases like, quote, didn't miss by much. So what? It's still missed. Maybe, quote, fine margins could be retired too. <laughs> now I'm trying to think, like, what have I said right? that this she This sounds hates. like a lot of things that we may have said on the show. Sorry, Pat. I'll tell you what I don't like. Who is this guy? Oh, my God. That's John McEnroe. doesn't know anybody. I guess, I mean, there are probably a lot of things, but then then I become self-conscious about, like, what I've said repeatedly. Exactly. Yeah. So, like, this is part of my hesitance to dunk on commentary okay. right now. What I don't like is downplaying a player's talents, which is John McEnroe does constantly, because he simply does not do his homework he doesn't watch tennis outside of the majors and it's obvious i don't like questioning players injuries uh and i know this isn't really pat's question but uh, but those are just sort of the conventions of commentary that i don't like more so than any one specific phrase which i'm sure there are many i just have to like be tuned into the commentary to like make a list which i haven't been it's this idea that every point needs to be commentated on. It's cer- mm. I assure you it does not. Like finding space for the tennis to breathe on its own is such a skill. Yeah. In tennis commentary. And today watching the women's semifinal, the combination of Wozniacki and Navratilova was entirely <laughs> too much. Um like, if your point has spanned multiple points, your point is too much. Let me let me just say less because about that. Because one of the, the shortcomings and the struggles for former players turned tennis commentators is that they have to prove their acumen. And part of that is, while you may find a lot of the things that they say insightful, it's this constant need to tell you everything they know. And so that mm-hmm. runs on point after point, point over point. Maybe that's a failure of the structure of commentary, the inability of commentators to have sidebars in between games on changeovers to then talk to the audience because they're often commercial. You know, get some mm-hmm. of that stuff off then rather than point to point. But during the actual playing of the tennis, for me, less is always more. Unless something truly unique happens that you have a unique perspective on. Yeah, which is why I think that old school BBC commentary, like you can see on old Wimbledon matches, is feels very silent to us, to Americans. Rachel Engelke, I hope I pronounced that correctly, says, If you could host a dinner party of eight to ten people, 
U2 plus six guests or U2 plus eight guests from the tennis world, players, non-players, a mix of both. You decide who would you invite. Okay, uh, I'll go first. So I picked Isha Price uh, and Orosine Price. Okay. Alejandro Davidovich Fekina, because he might bring some pets. Dasha Kazatkina, Ivan Gulagong, uh, Ted Tinling, and Bud Collins, because we love a chismosa. You need you need journalists there because they have the best tea. And then finally, Vika Azarenka, because again, I think she has the best tea and would be willing to spill it. Okay, I have eight people. I have Jill Smoller, because I want some behind-the-scenes info about the careers, <laughs> you know. I've got Zena Garrison, Isha Price, we have an overlap there, Chanda Rubin, Venus Williams, Billie Jean King, Ted Tinling, and Grigor Dimitrov. Okay, all right. I think there's a lot of possibilities of things to happen at this party. I think while Billie Jean King is regaling everybody with stories of yesteryear and then Ted Tinling telling you about the dresses that he created, Venus and Grigor made sneak off into the kitchen and share a and... romantic moment. Oh, oh You never really? know, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Zena is always good for a story or two. Yeah. We've had her on the show before. Love listening to Zena's stories. Chanda, I feel like, would be the silent participant who would be the value add to, like, pipe up when necessary to give a good story or two. Mm-hmm. And Isha is there to make sure that the order is kept. <laughs> As yes. she would at any Williams yes. press conference. You notice, like, in both of our lists, there aren't many superstars. Like, superstar players. Because, honestly, I don't think they're that interesting. No, they're not. They're really not. No. When you get to a certain level. Um if which I, is why I did not include Serena. Yeah. No, because they're too guarded. Yeah. Which is also why I think most of the superstars wouldn't be great coaches or commentators because they're so incredibly like extraterrestrially talented that they don't have a lot to tell just the regular folks. And this grouping for me spans so many generations that I feel like I'm looking for the conversation. Yes. If I could, I would do a separate dinner with only journalists throughout the years because they have all the stories mm. and they would be willing to share we're going to end the episode with a couple of questions from tennis t at t-n-n-s-t-e-a whoever this person is submitted seven questions we will not answer all of them we'll pick the ones that we want to address the first one was when will Mac be sent to bed and unfortunately, Never. there is no there's no bedtime. I think I will definitely be dead before that happens. Oh my god, I hope not. <laughs> e, would TBS visit Indian Wells if invited with all expenses paid? Invited by whom is my question. Yeah, because I, I don't stay with people I don't know. And I'm not period. being invited by Larry Ellison and taking that money. I'm just not. C- correct. But, yeah, if somebody is paying... For the hotel and not paying for favorable coverage, totally, I'll be there. Really, if they're paying, because you know that's why this question was asked. Because you have been a decade well, long I'm a, on this. I'm a hater. You are yeah. the biggest. So hater if somebody in pays for my flight, 
lodging, food, alcohol, and tickets to the tennis, I'll be there. However, do not expect favorable coverage while I'm there. I mean, it was offered. I'm not asking. Another question. Are we hoping for Arena to succeed Iga just for some spice? I would rather have bland food than that happen at this point. (laughs) I'd rather eat... You know I have no problems eating boiled potatoes. Yeah, I know. Like, you must be part Irish, I swear. Um, (laughs) Now, at this point, and this will be all moot because we'll have covered this on the French Open recap episode, we were very measured with our critique of Sabalenka on our mid-French Open episode. And... Man, shit hit the fan since then. Yeah. Like and not, we've soured and so... Not feeling super generous about Arena. But I do think, like, yeah, the sport could benefit from intrigue at the top. I'd rather that person be Rybakina. Okay. I'm just saying that I'm fine with Iga at number one. I don't sure. need somebody yeah. to be taking her spot at this point. It hasn't been that long. We're still seeing Iga struggle through bits and pieces on court right it's not like she's right. found the magic as gladys knight did on the <laughs> endless on the end of the road medley yeah yeah <laughs> you know yeah. it's we're still watching her develop in real time that's still interesting to me watching her navigate had admired today that was interesting to me yeah so if these other contenders are here to beat her and eventually come to number one i welcome it as well because you you'd have earned it at that point but for me, I was not ready for it to be Sabalenka at this tournament. Oh, okay. I don't like I don't really care who is number one actually. I just like competitive matches. I like I'd like my faves to do well. I'd like players to win slams without like double bageling people, you know, that kind of thing. But I don't really care who's number one. You like them to win them without double big? Right. Well, unless it's Serena, of course. That's what I'm trying to figure <laughs> out here. Like, But Serena's retired, and so that era is over for me. Hmm. Okay. Well, that brings us to the end of this mailbag episode. I hope we're having fun somewhere. Right. I hope this, this has tided you over until the next Body Serve episode, which will be a grass court episode of some sort. Mm-hmm. We'll, we might be in the midst of Wimbledon when we come back. No. I mean, we have to at least do a preview oh, episode. Oh, right. It, it got pushed back. Wimbledon. I don't know where your head is at right now. It will not. We'll be back Actually, before Wimbledon. many years ago, it got pushed back. <laughs> the, it, you know, the channel slam is not as difficult anymore. Oh, okay. <laughs> My name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. And I'm James at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. You can find everything BodyServe related at linktree.com slash thebodyserve. Thanks for listening. Till next time. Thank you. Thank you very much.